Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we have a, a really special guest. So we're joined by Kyle Hetzel. And Kyle has, I think, a really fun background to bring to the discussion of horses because Kyle comes out of the zoo community. And Kyle, why don't you jump in and with a quick hello? And and I want to ask, I want to start by finding out a little bit more about your background because I think it really informs the whole direction that we're going to be taking this conversation and what, in many ways, what is evolving and emerging from the zoo community, it can inspire us to reach for much better ways of asking for things with our horses. Because we do tend, as horse people, to get into the rut of, it's a domestic animal, I can put a halter on it, and I can get the job done. But you come out of the zoo community where you can't put a halter on some of the animals you've worked with. It doesn't work quite the same. So tell us about some of the very cool animals you've, and where, how did, how did you, what took you to working in zoos? What was that path? Well, I just want to again say that I'm very, very excited and humbled to be here and uh, excited to talk with you guys. So I've been in the animal care field for about 11 years, and I've always wanted to work with exotics. I've always just been fascinated by them, watching them, learning as much as I can about them. And it was as a kid watching Steve Irwin bring wildlife into your home, the crocodile hunter, and the excitement and the passion that he had is something that really kind of connected with me when I was younger. And that was about eight, nine years old. I was dead set that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with animals and I wanted to share them with people. I wanted people to get excited, to care about them, to pay attention to them more. I'm going to interrupt for a second because it's so interesting. So you had the crocodile hunter. We had Marlon Perkins and Wild Kingdom in my, that was, and which was a completely different experience. That was, let's go out and dart some creature and capture it, so to speak. I think um, what you got from from Steve Irwin is a much better model than <laughs> Marlon Perkins and Wild Kingdom. Though for the time, you know, it yeah. was, I shouldn't really criticize that because for the time it, it was a reflection of where we stood. So it's kind of an interesting to look at those two things together to see an evolution in how we how we regard the uh, natural world and how we want to interact with it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, sometimes the community can be torn about even the crocodile hunter, but one thing that they really could never question was his passion. And that's what drove him. And I think that's what, you know, I always talk about lit a fire in me about continuing to drive my career and my passion forward is that same fire. And so ever since then, every step that I've taken has been towards that animal care field. My very first internship um, in college was actually working with rescued big cats in Indiana. Um, It was an amazing sanctuary called the Exotic Feline Rescue Center that rescued 250 big cats from 
all walks of life all over the United States. Um, everything from lions that were abandoned on a roadside in a circus cage to a woman in New York having a full-size lioness living in her apartment. And seeing those animals and interacting with those animals just was my intro to it all. And uh, after that, I started to continue to work on my degree towards uh, animal science. So I specialized in health and nutrition in college. And while I was in college, I had my first chance to start to learn about animal behavior with a really well-known dog trainer in the area that specialized in working canines. So her specialty was um, man trailing, drug detection, bite work, really high-end dog training. And a lot of the problem dogs in the area would come. Um, there was a dog that we met that had an obsessive compulsive disorder with ceiling fans where the family would turn on a ceiling fan and the dog would, you know, get way over aroused and just lose all functioning abilities and being able to see how that behavior can be influenced so easily in the environment. I was like, well, wouldn't it be cool if I can combine these two things that I really love in this behavior and the exotics and kind of bring them together. And I uh, took my journey out to California. I'm originally from Chicago and, I saw in California, all these opportunities, all these different zoos, all these different rescues and sanctuaries. And I said, well, I think that'd be the best place for me to go to, to really help get my foot in the door in this industry. And uh, my first job out of college was at the Wildlife Learning Center in Los Angeles that took in, again, rescued animals and actually started to educate people in the area from preschoolers to colleges to amphitheaters. Uh, we would bring rescued wildlife to be able to teach people about them. And I started to kind of learn a little bit more and more about training and working with exotics and how having that cooperation with them to be able to interact with people in a safe manner was really, really important. And that led me to um, moving to Northern California and I got a job at um, Six Flags Discovery Kingdom. And that was where things really took off for me and learning about these animals in human care. Uh, I was in April 2014. I just started and the giraffe team was getting ready for a session and the giraffe advisor who people have listened to your podcast, uh, Lisa Clifton Bumpus was the advisor of the draft training team. I, and I just had asked, Hey, would it be okay if I watched the training session on my break? Would that be okay? And they said, yeah, certainly just, you know, we'll be here watching. And they brought in male giraffe Brandon to start the training session and he was facing us so he had his chest up against the fence line facing the trainers and they held up a blue frisbee and effortlessly gracefully he pivoted and moved parallel to the fence and I was told by Lisa that the look on my face was what the look on the main character in Jurassic Park's face when he first saw a dinosaur and it was just so beautiful to see this fluid movement of this giraffe recognized the cue. And I think Lisa kind of saw that I really, really, really wanted to learn how they did that. Um, and that was really my intro into starting to work with large exotics in uh, human care. And from there, it's just kind of fostered and taken off with a lot of different learners that um, I've been a part of some amazing teams in my career and people and animals have shaped the approach that I currently have. Before we jump into where we're going to be heading, I think one of the things that you've just done is uh, given people a tremendous gift in terms of insights into how you 
enter into this field because I know a lot of people, you know, teenagers and so on, say, oh, you know, I, I want to I spend my life working with horses and or I want to spend my life working with animals and, um, and, and but they don't know how to go about doing it. And they don't understand that, yes, it involves education. You know, you, it, I suppose there, there are people who come up by uh, volunteering and getting a job cleaning out the, you know, the cages and, and enclosures and so on. But this involved an education. This involved going to school and it, it didn't just happen. So I think that's <laughs> a really important part of all of this is how you go about finding your, yourself in these amazing positions that, that and life experiences. So, so yeah, the, the education is a big part in it because at one point I went to my college advisors and professors and I said, this is what I want to do. I'm pretty dead set on it. And they, they didn't really know how to steer me. They didn't really know how to advise me. I went to a, a primarily agricultural school. And so they're like, well, this degree means you go and do this. And I said, well, can't I use that information in another capacity? You know, it, it's, you know, formulating diets and understanding disease processes and, and zoonotic diseases. So it was, it was definitely that, I don't want to say there were roadblocks, but there were challenges that definitely presented themselves that required what you're talking about, that perseverance to kind of keep going and finding the people that have the answers and talking to professionals in the field make a big difference. Are you still in Northern California? I am. I'm at a zoo in uh, Northern California now. Um, and the area that I work is primarily the, the children's zoo barnyard area, which is what has led me to Alex um, and learning about behavior in the equine world and how it translates over to my past experiences and how there's a lot of interconnectivity with every species that you work with. And you have the capability of learning a lot more from each individual species and, and carrying it through. And that's kind of one of the things that I've been so fortunate with is the animals that I've worked with always kind of seem to build on the next learner and helping out the next learner that I, I work with. Um, so can you tell us about the animals you previously worked with before you ended up uh, where you are right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the, the first big exotics that I worked with was Brandon the giraffe. Um, he was such a student of training that it, it was amazing to work with. That if I walked up for a training session to work with him and I didn't have my next fox ready, he would walk away. He's like, you're, you're not worth my time, get it together and pay attention. And so if at any point, you know, he figured out where I was going and I wasn't there yet, it was, it was a big lesson in me to make sure that I had the entire training plan mapped out. I knew my generalization. I knew where I wanted to do it. And he was a great teacher in that because he was so eager to learn and so willing and so ready that he made sure that every time I stepped up to any training session, I was on my A game. Um, and the next big learner in my career was Wyatt, who was a, a gray wolf. And he came to, um, the collection as a puppy and he was about eight weeks old and he was just full of energy and bouncing off the walls and so much fun that as he was getting older, we noticed that he was bumping into things, running into corners, um, really 
a lot more clumsy than you'd expect a wolf to be. You know, people picture wolves and they're very graceful and elegant in how they move. Um, he was not that at all. And so spending all that time with him, he was, when a lot of animals come into to zoo collections, they have to spend quite a bit of time in quarantine, making sure they're not bringing anything into the existing collection. So what that means for zookeepers is that you have to shower in, change clothes, shower out, change clothes. And especially a really intelligent animal like a wolf, you're doing that four or five times a day, spending time with them, getting them used to you, starting the training process, all of those things. And so I, I, every opportunity that I had, I was in there with him, spending time with him. And, you know, knowing that we were wanting to use him as a part of the ambassador collection to be able to meet people, be out on walks, to be an ambassador for a species, um, we wanted to make sure that veterinary care was paramount for him. So as about a six-month-old puppy, once we started noticing these issues of running into the corners, we had an ophthalmologist come in and look at his eyes and found out that he was developing cataracts in his eyes. They were getting bigger. And so most of his vision was actually blocked in front of him. But because they have such a strong sense of smell and his environment didn't change for so long, he knew us and we couldn't really tell that it was his vision. But once the vets diagnosed him, we're like, okay, so what's our plan moving forward? And I said, well, he's gonna to need to receive these eye drops twice a day until further notice. And so we had to train him for cooperative care. And silly me being excited about it, I was like, well, I just saw this great video of a Doberman voluntarily putting on a muzzle. I said, well, that would probably be a really helpful behavior to have for a wolf, you know, meeting a vet, close quarters, free contact, you do eye exams. And then they tell me he can't see. So this whole plan about being able to have him put his nose into a muzzle kind of went out the door knowing that he has no idea where the muzzle is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we worked in shaping a process where he actually moved his head into our hand very early on, to be able to shape the muzzle process. Um, and so we trained him for the muzzle, the, the vet exams went off great. He was wonderful. Um, and then we had to start with the eye drop training. So many of the dog trainers out there are very familiar with the process of the animal really has to be calm and sit still in your hands to be able to administer the eye drops so that the medicine has time to take hold. They're not scratching at their eyes. And because we were able to implement that training so fast and so early on, it actually helped in a reduction of the cataract size as he developed and got older. So as he was aging, we went from 30% of his vision to at about a year and a half old, he had 70% of his vision. So wow. he, he did really, really well with the training and learning um, that really just kind of took off. And right around that time, uh, another one of the drafts in the herd that I was working with, Rosie, really, really required advanced training. She, at a young age, had actually hypersplayed out. So if you guys can picture uh, Bambi on ice, all okay. four legs going. To, all the way out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. So it, yeah, it, it, it really hindered her growth and her development to require quite a bit of medical care as she aged. You know, you can imagine sustaining that injury at such a young age, but then developing, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and having to support all of that weight on a compromised system. And Rosie's lesson for us was understanding 
the natural order of the animal and human care. And so giraffes by nature are very, very selective browsers. Very they, selective about humans? You about said? browsing, about the, the food that they eat. Oh, okay. So in the wild, you know, they'll walk up to an acacia tree, eat three, four bites from it, and then walk a little bit downwind because acacia trees will actually release hormone or biochemicals to other acacia trees that there's a threat in the area and they'll actually change the flavor to protect themselves. The leaves will protect themselves from getting eaten by giraffe. So then giraffes will walk further and further to get to another acacia tree, eat a little bit from there and so on. And so, that's really, because I've heard this about acacia trees and, and so they've really documented that the giraffes are going downwind, that they're not, wow. Don't you love, you, you just have to love how these things evolve together. It's, it's so cool. And so with Rosie, we would spend close to 30, 40 minutes prepping her training buckets. So you would pick sweet pea, you'd pick mustard, you'd pick grasses, plantains, you'd pick all these different types of food that's growing around the area for her to eat, but you'd have to pick it in layered buckets because in the middle of your training session, her flavor profile or preference for what she was doing would change. Wow. Or the things that you were asking her to do, the economics for the behavior would go up. So you'd have to up the reinforcement or the preference that she would have. Um, and because of the injury and as she was aging, we started uh, cold laser therapy, which is becoming more and more common with um, treatment with giraffe. But again, giraffe aren't an animal that enjoy being touched by people. And then you add into the fact a very expensive piece of medical equipment touching them as well. Yes. And prepping her and training her for cold laser therapy, we were using a lot of different items that Lisa was advising us, you know, so that it wouldn't always be the same item in the same spot because the laser needs to be able to move to different locations. And one day we were working Rosie and she stopped taking the brows that I had. So I switched to another piece and she didn't want that piece either. And I'm looking, I'm up at her head. So I'm 16 feet off the ground on a ladder and I'm looking at her gaze. And when you're working with giraffe, you have to always think about the fact that they are 16, 18, 20 feet up in the air. So they can see, hear, and smell things that you have no idea. You're not right. even aware of. Right. And I just kind of followed her gaze down and she was looking at a brush in our fun little box of tricks of things that we would pull out to introduce her like novel items to be touched with. And so at that point we had looked and thought like a brush would be a really big jump for a giraffe to want to be touched with. And Lisa had informed us of animals requesting behaviors, a man. And so we held up the brush and Rosie actually moved her hip into the brush. Wow. And from that point on, she would actually tell us exactly where she'd want to be brushed. It was very, very specific. It was location specific. It was person specific. So a certain trainer had to be holding the brush. If anybody else tried to hold the brush, she would not prefer it. It had to be a certain trainer that knew exactly the right amount of pressure and the right amount of location to brush her to help with that. And we were able to introduce the brush, accelerated her training to the, to the cold laser therapy. 
Um, so it was, it was a really, really big jump to help get to that point by just understanding that her reinforcement profile had changed, dramatically changed. And so she was just an animal that really highlighted the fact that just because you think you know what this species reinforcement is, doesn't mean that that's what it's always going to be. Right. It can be something very, very different, very off the wall, but having the ability to understand that your training session is not a one-way communication line, but it's a two-way street. And that as trainers, we need to be listening more than we need to be talking at times. And that is, needs uh, to be underlined. And I can, I can see, you know, people who have horses where they're struggling, that the wheels are just spinning because I think, you know, how ego lifting it would be for the person who, you know, I'm the person Rosie wants holding the brush and how ego destroying it would be for everybody else. Uh, Rosie doesn't like the way I brush her. And, and if it's your horse and you're hearing this and saying, wow, if a giraffe has preferences like this, surely our horses do as well. And clearly, you know, we've all seen it. Those of us who pay any attention at all that horses definitely have preferences in what brushes they will enjoy and accept. And you start thinking of it's getting down to the level of who's holding that brush. I have to go out and really reevaluate and ask my horse what what he thinks of all of this and hope that the answer comes back. You're quite fine as a, as a groomer. Oh, wow. Wow. And to have it so clearly expressed. Oh, it was, it was clear as day. And then to the point where like, okay, it's person specific, it's location specific. Does she prefer a different type of brush? So then we started bringing out all different types of bristles and lengths and coarseness. And sure enough, variety was important to her. On certain days that if it was cooler, she'd want a coarser, smaller brush for a more location specific. Warmer days when she's moving around more, a big push broom head was a big preference for her. It, it, so it was a really eye-opening experience that with the help of Lisa and, and the help of previous trainers to Rosie made all the difference in the world in her training. And that's something that I, I, I really wanna make sure I highlight is that the teams of people that I've worked with that potentially move on to other facilities or, you know, chose other career paths, still remain in contact with and help with the training pictures quite a bit. Um, there are a lot of people that made a difference in all the animals that I've might talk about today or highlight, but the team training approach or the people that care for these animals is really, really important to me to highlight that they're, it wasn't ever just me, but it was always a team of people that brought together the betterment of a lot of these animals. And that's something that I think is really, really cool hearing, especially last week talking to Lisa about, you know, that team training approach that she ingrained in me at a really early point in my uh, training career, how vital everybody's role is, how they're going to see and perceive information differently. And the person that Rosie selected for the brush holder was not a trainer, was actually a vet tech that she was very specific about picking. And so folding in that vet tech into the training picture helped Rosie because it helped a different perspective come in and knowing like, okay, anatomically speaking, I can understand why Rosie wants this one spot here, pressure or the not pressure. So it, it, it really, really was a big 
turning point for me to work with Rosie and to learn so much about reinforcement and so much about the conversation part of the training picture. Had that vet tech had um, history with the giraffe? She had. She did have a lot of history with the giraffe in the sense of... Um, positive history, obviously. <laughs> she Yes, she had positive history, but she also had training background. She came from a training institution. And so she was able to, again, combine her training picture with her veterinary tech now knowledge to help us advance the animals but she she had such an eye for behavior and was so helpful in so many species at that facility because of her ability to incorporate training into the medical picture and um, I, I i think the whole discussion about teams is also really important because again a lot of people feel isolated they feel as though there's nobody around them they they want to use positive reinforcement and in the barn that they're boarding in, there may be a lot of uh, negative conversations about, oh, you're going to ruin that horse, et cetera, et cetera. And they feel very isolated. Or polite or, or polite silence. <laughs> yeah, or po polite silence is better than active, uh, you're going to ruin that horse. And yeah. then they also get, you know, or, or they have their horses at home and there's nobody around them. And I think there is enormous value in having a team and I'd love for you to talk more about what what a team gives you you know that obviously with a giraffe you've got to have somebody 18 feet up on a ladder to give the reinforcement and so it's very handy having more than one person around and when you forgot the brush on the floor <laughs> yes yes so so all of that is really important but I also think there are many ways to develop a team and when people are feeling isolated and by themselves, that's one of the strengths of the internet. And, and I don't mean connecting on a Facebook group, you know, not, not to be negative about Facebook groups, but I think sometimes what people are looking for is a team, a personal team, you know, where they're, they're, it's a group of, a small group of people who know one another well and who know each other's animals well and where they can trust each other and, and know that they're there. You know, so if, there's, if something comes up and there's a puzzle in the training, a bad day or whatever, they've got a community of thinkers that they can reach out to who know the animal's history. And there aren't all the different voices that you get on a Facebook group coming in that can be really confusing. So could you talk for just a few minutes about what it is that working in teams has given you, why you wouldn't want to choose to say, oh, I'll be the lone wolf. I can train this animal by myself. It, it's, it's very funny you use that analogy because it, it, it does tie back into to working with Wyatt the wolf that there came a point when I was working him and I was the, the primary person working him. And there was beginning to be some behavior breakdown in the eye drops. And so knowing that I needed help and knowing that I couldn't be the lone wolf with this wolf kind of taking it all on and knowing that I needed that extra set of eyes to watch the sessions, to observe, to, to give me critical feedback and breaking down what I was doing. I actually networked out to the sea line team in the park where I was at Six Flags. And I said, you guys have a ton of experience working with large carnivores and eye exams do you guys mind coming and watching my sessions and helping me out to work through this? And asking for that help and them coming down was 
incredibly daunting and incredibly intimidating because I now invited 10 people to pick apart my session. Right. Wow. <laughs> You're and, brave. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And, and 10 people that are very advanced trainers, you know, working with marine mammals is, is no small feat. And the feedback and the information that I got from them was so helpful in helping to work Wyatt because then another issue cropped up with him where I say this jokingly, but it, it was a, a very interesting issue that he started to drop weight. And what was happening was, is we would go, we'd do his PM session and we'd feed him his dinner. And then we continue to go around and do the rest of the rounds and feed the rest of the animals. And it just so happened one day I came back to check on him and I noticed that he had vomited, but his companion wolf, another wolf that he lived with was eating it. Exactly. Yes. There's no other way to put it. She was eating it. Yes. Um, and she was gaining weight. <laughs> she was gaining weight. He was losing weight really quickly. So we ran a blood test and found out that why it was quite literally allergic to so many things in the world, different types of tree pollens, uh, pine. So the shavings that we were using for his bedding, he was allergic to. He was allergic to apples and carrots, which were a part of the kibble diet that he was receiving. So in order to help the company that ran the blood test creates basically a, a way to help introduce those allergens in a small doses mm -hmm. help build up that resistance that a lot of people that have animals that have allergies are familiar with. And the fun part with that was that we had to put the mouth drops underneath his tongue, but then couldn't reinforce him with food or water for five minutes afterwards. Okay. And so what did you use as a reinforcer? Movement. Uh, we use movements. So he loved going on walks. So being able to get him out and moving after he received the drops was big. Um, and that was, again, at, at the advisement of the sea lion team, helping and seeing like, he has a motor, he wants to go use that to your advantage, use that as a reinforcer that awesome, you did this. Now let's go and run, let's go do something. And it was that, that initial step in networking and talking to them and asking them to watch the sessions that helped ultimately Wyatt, but then opened a door for me to join the sea lion team and move over to marine mammals from land mammals. And that's where the, the team thing really kind of. I fell in love with the fact of having 10 people watch the session and pick apart everything because a sea lion is going to pick apart a behavior that you do differently than everybody else. And they're going to sit there and watch that, help you get better with that animal. And there was an incredible sea lion named Kai, and he was 22 years old, had been doing this forever. And he was such a great mentor that he would allow you to learn how to work a 500 pound animal safely and effectively. And once you got to that point that you had the confidence, he would start messing with you with little pieces of criteria here and there just to see if you were paying attention, but it would be so subtle. It would be so little as holding his breath when you stopped, you know, you want to see like to be nice and relaxed and very much like horses that breath, having that breath work connected is really important. And so he would do something little like that. And you're paying attention to all these other things. And one of your co-trainers would be like, He's been holding his breath for about 60 seconds now. Talk to him. And so having a conversation with him and sure enough, you'd wow. and just relax and do it with you. And so these little things. That was a stress sign that he would oh. hold his, what, what, why was he holding his breath? Just to, it, it was merely to make sure sea lines, you know, naturally they're not, they're designed to be able to hold their breath for a really long time, but right. it, it's an indicator for a marine mammal trainer often to 
monitor their breath and to make sure that they're nice and relaxed. Because if they're holding their breath, they could be anticipating the next movement or not really paying attention to what you're asking them to do. So paying attention to their breath is actually really, really critical in being able to measure their comfort in a situation. So if you're doing a show and you know you have 2,000 people that are excited to see you working and your sea lion hasn't taken a breath the entire time you've been out there, you're like, oh, th- this animal's on edge. This animal isn't really comfortable. And you, you want that animal to be comfortable. You want that animal to be in sync with you so that you know they're safe and you're safe. And so the little things that Kai would do, he, he would literally just, he had you on his own training plan. And he would constantly raise the criteria little by little to, to make sure that you were paying attention, to make sure that you were seeing all these details. So as you'd work, you know, less advanced sea lines, you could see those things and you could help those animals learn. And I, I was just so privileged to work with him in that environment to help other animals adapt because there were animals that were born in human care. There were sea lions that were born in human care. And then there were sea lions that were rescued from the wild that came in that you had to work very differently that were quite different in personality. And, and one of the things that I found really interesting that everybody gets a kick out of is oftentimes you want that hand reared animal. You want the animal that's been around people the longest that knows people that it has those associations. But in the sea lions that I've worked those hand-reared animals could care less about you. They're like, you're going to come back in about three hours from my lunchtime feed, so I'm going to go and swim around. You just hang out here. I'll be back in a second. Whereas the animals that were rescued from the wild were so attentive in the sense of, you mean if, if I just sit here and hang out with you, I get fed? This is amazing. There's no sharks out here. There, there's nobody that's going to come and steal my food. This is amazing. I'll sit here all day with you. It's okay. This is great. And one of the males that I got to work with, his name was Sharkbite, because sure enough, as a juvenile, he was attacked by a shark. He went to the Marine Mammal Center where they rehabilitated him and were able to release him back onto the wild. And unfortunately for Sharkbite, he was attacked again by a shark, but this time it actually had injured him to the point where he couldn't be released again. So he needed a forever home. And so he came to live at Six Flags for his forever home. but coming from a rescued situation as a trainer you have to remember a couple things that his interactions with people were not meant to promote a relationship you know when people are rehabilitating animals they don't want them to have that bond and that association with people Mm. and the people that do that job are incredible and i'm so grateful and thankful for them but it is a job that you know they're not trying to form the relationships and the bonds that trainers in human care are Mm. And so being able to work that into his, his repertoire and into his life picture was a challenge at first because he, he didn't want to come out. He didn't want to be a part of the training sessions at first, but over time and understanding his reinforcement was actually going back into the water for just coming outside was a, a big step for him. And seeing him blossom because of the lessons that Kai had taught really, really helped. And he became such a great ambassador for a species to talk about the rehabilitation process and the function that these animals can serve in human care that oftentimes, you know, at the Marine Mammal Center, they're not getting healthy animals in. So being a part of the human care picture, we can learn, you know, about blood values for an adolescent male sea lion that came from the wild. We can learn about what a healthy heart rate is for an adolescent sea lion. We can learn about all these really, really important data points that helps the Marine Mammal Center then later on because 
we foster these relationships and they they're a part of husbandry and healthcare. And that was really, really big. And where that kind of went to is working with a, a sea lion named Maggie that was rescued from a facility and came into our care. And she, at the time, we believe was the oldest sea lion in the United States. She was 33 years old. She had never had any kind of formalized training experience, never been around people. She was at a facility that had just, you could pay, the public could pay and they could just throw fish to her. And that was her only really interaction with people. And so coming into the facility, you know, we, we wanted to give her her retirement home. You know, she, we knew that she was older. We just wanted to give her a nice, big, comfy beach and a big pool to be able to swim around in and interact in. And that was, that was going to be what our goal was for Maggie. But it turned out that she too had a lot of eye issues. And so the training team had said, well, let's try and do something for her for these eye drops because she has no training. She has no reason to come up and interact with people. So how can we help change that for her? And we, we all worked together to come up with a plan so that we weren't just raining eye drops on her, hoping to get them in because that adds up quite a bit. It, it's very, very cost ineffective to try and administer eye drops to an animal that doesn't know how to get eye drops. So she actually started us down the path of the animal being able to initiate behavior and initiate interactions with us. And so that, that was, again, where understanding this team approach and pulling in together people's experiences and perspectives about this behavior was so, so important. At the time, we were using uh, a verbal marker. So we would bridge just verbally. But because Maggie couldn't hear well and Maggie couldn't see well, we had to switch to a mechanical bridge because one of the trainers said, well, I think she would actually hear much, much better if we had a really sharp whistle. And sure enough, perfect. That was exactly what Maggie needed at the time. And we started then to take and incorporate the, the training that we had with Wyatt about being able to lay her head in our hands to be able to administer the eye drops and kind of combining our experiences with watching the training sessions with Wyatt and what we did with Wyatt to helping Maggie out. And so Maggie's training actually evolved into some really, really awesome things for her to rest her head in our hands, be able to administer eye drops. We were able to do a full restraint-free eye exam where they took the eye pressure of her eye. For people that may not know, they actually have to touch the eyeball with a little uh, bead. Uh, and Maggie held still for two minutes in our hand while the ophthalmologist conducted a full eye exam on her. And she was perfect. She, again, the animal had never experienced any kind of one-on-one -on -one human contact or any kind of formalized training and was able to just accelerate through this because of really incredible team training and perspective from everybody. So what we learned with Maggie, I brought to the facility that I'm at now and incorporating with barnyard animals, you know, that these animals can have a voice in participating in how they want to participate and can freely and openly communicate with us within the sessions. And it's just, it's because of these other animals and these teachers that I've had really make a difference in how we're going to be approaching a lot of these domestic animals moving forward. Because the, the common view of domestic animals is just grab them and get it done because they're a domestic animal. And yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a cow, it's a sheep, it's a horse, just grab them and get it done. And that 
their perspective, their rich emotional life, we don't need to consider because they're just a domestic animal. And you're seeing well, that's when that's when people admit that they do have an emotional life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you're bringing a very different perspective into this and discovering that when you engage them cooperatively, that just really astounding things can can emerge. So what have been some of the what have you been trained? What are the animals that you're working with? And what have you been training and what have you been learning? What is the ripple effect? Because this is in a zoo where people are watching and observing just the general public. So the ripple effect in terms of changing how people perceive animals is huge. I'm going to stop us here. I will tell you that our conversation with Kyle was a long one. There was so much rich material. It was tempting to serve it up as one long conversation, but I think it makes more sense to split it up. I think you'll find that you absorb the material more easily when I slice it into smaller chunks. Kyle is about to talk about the barnyard animals he's been working with. Goats and horses and a steer named Slider, animals that most of us are more familiar with than giraffes and sea lions and the other animals he's been talking about. But how he works with these barnyard animals is very much informed by what he's learned working with the wild animals he's been telling us about. Cooperative care will be the theme of the next episode. I'm very much looking forward to it. Something else I'm looking forward to are the spring clinics. Coming up in April, the Energy and Emotions Clinic has only one or two spots left. So if you're interested in that one, do contact me sooner rather than later. There is still room in the April Extinction Friend or Foe Clinic. You can go to my website, theclickercenter.com, to find out what that one's about. It's a really important clinic, particularly if you're at the stage where you're still struggling a bit to make clicker training work well for you. If you're still seeing some emotional behavior in your, in your learner that you're not, you're not really understanding. So the Extinction Clinic is a really good one to help explain a bit of what's going on. And you've been listening to Kyle talking about how much he gained by working in a team. Having the sea lion trainers watch him with Wyatt the Wolf helped him administer the eye drops. As you were listening to this, if you were wishing you had a team like that, then absolutely take a look at the clinics. They are designed so that I can watch you working with your horse. It's a great opportunity to get the kind of feedback that Kyle found so helpful. To learn more about the clinics, go to theclickercenter.com. And for those of you who have taken a look, I had a broken link in my homepage. So if you tried to look at the clinic schedule before and couldn't get there, if you hit a roadblock, do check it out again. Hopefully I found and fixed all the bad links. So next time, next episode, we'll continue on 
into Kyle's work with goats and horses and slider the steer. Plus, he'll tell us some stories about some of the other animals he's worked with at the zoo. It's a really fun conversation, so I'm absolutely looking forward to it. And until then, stay safe and have fun with your horses. <laughs> <laughs>